Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Yeah, all right, everybody. You asked for it, so you got it. Um, everyone seemed to really dig our creepy pasta episode that we did. Uh, yeah, we did, back. we did it back in October doing our, our slew of Halloween-themed science episodes. That's right, yeah. Uh, and so if you haven't listened to that one yet, I recommend you go back and listen to it. But the, the basic premise was uh, if, if uh, creepy pastas are short horror stories that are kind of memes written for the internet or just based on images for the internet. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we took, I think three of them that were very sciencey oriented. It turns out a couple of these things are, are basically like such and such thing happens in a mad laboratory, uh, chaos ensues, yeah, right? Crazy experiment gets out of hand. People pull their skin off. Uh, people can't sleep, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we used it as a springboard to talk about actual science that, uh, not so much the science behind the creepypasta, but the right. science that can stem. If you follow the the tracks of the science from the creepypasta, yeah. then you can get to some some really cool studies and whatnot. Yeah, so we took a look at three of them, and then uh, there was a really positive response to that episode. Yeah. So uh, we have been recommended over, uh, you know, actually, this is a good opportunity to plug the ways to contact us. People have contacted us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr, and then have emailed us directly asking us, Hey, do more creepy pastas. Uh, and specifically, they wanted us to cover something called Jeff the Killer. <laughs> and I was totally unfamiliar with this until it was sent to us. Uh, and, uh, it, I, I got, I gotta be honest. It's not exactly, uh, my favorite of the creepy pastas no. <laughs> I've read, but I can see why it's uh, compelling, especially yeah. since it's, it's largely based off of just like a single image that looks like a photoshopped kind of creepy joker thing. Yeah. And the image itself, I was sort of following the, uh, the, the leads there, like where did it come from? And it's one of these things where, you know, somebody on some message board manipulated an image, someone else manipulated it, yeah. and then there's, there's some creepy tales about what the underlying image was. So some of that is kind yeah. of compelling in the, the sort of weird creepy pasta, where did it come from? Let's thing. touch on that just a little bit further. So, uh, Annalene Newitz over at io9 mm-hmm. has an article, the, uh, that is basically like the expose of, of potentially where the image came from. And apparently some folks over at 4chan did some like detective work. Right. And they found out that the image that Jeff the killer is based on is a photoshopped image of a girl who was being bullied. Uh, was she being bullied on the internet or in real life? Allegedly, anyway. Okay. I don't know to what extent that all and and out. killed herself due to the bullying. Mm-hmm. This is the again another story. There's been no evidence to to bring this up other than that that there seems to be some connection. And they they brought up the photo and, and yeah, it does. It looks like it's the original photo that this was photoshopped of. Yeah. So, so even the origin story of this image, this manipulated image is kind of, uh, kind of goes into like the creepier, darker side of the internet, uh, which I think adds to its, its appeal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get it. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily true or not. Uh, I, I'm like pretty sure Jeff, the killer itself is not true. No. Um, and we are not going to, uh, if you want to read it, you know, stop the podcast, Google Jeff, the killer. It's on the creepy pasta site. Uh, but the gist, do you want me to just throw the summary out there right now? Uh, yeah, I, I will. I, I, I do want to mention though that this is one that, like some of the creepypastas out there, it's gotten to the point where authors will step forward or authors are, yeah. are saying, I wrote this from the very beginning. This is one that does not seem to have an attributed author. If I'm wrong on that, 
let us know and yeah. we will give po- uh, you know proper credit uh, where it's due. But this one seems to this is an older one. It seems to just there are different versions of it. Most of them are not uh, not 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 uh, not the most um, well crafted bits of fiction. Yeah, as with most creepypastas, the it, the idea I think is interesting, but the the prose execution kind of falls apart a little bit. And yeah. I think that's part. It's that's part of the like appeal, a, right? Yeah, because it's like this is something. It must be true. It's written so poorly, right? You know? Right. It's this like the just, Wikipedia of yeah, horror exactly. stories. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it was written by five or six different people who have come in and kind of punched up certain sections yeah. or dropped. And out. that yeah. is kind of the magic of the true creepypasta. Pasta. You right. know, it shouldn't read like, um, you know, a, a beginning horror writer is just dumping his, yeah. his old drafts on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, OK, this is the premise of Jeff the Killer. Uh, so there's this character named Jeff. OK. Uh, and he's a teenager and he uh, is like subject to bullying. Uh, he and his brother. There's there's some implication in the version that I read that there's like a switch that goes off in his brain that kind of like unleashes his dark primal side or something like that during this bullying. Uh, and uh, there are multiple incidents in in which like he confronts the bullies and basically beats the living hell out of them. Uh, and then they show up at like a party or something. There's another incident. Uh, where they they hold him at gunpoint in front of like his parents and other people, uh, and 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 basically torture him, and it causes his face to be burned. And so, following this, he goes insane, and Joker style from the Dark Knight cuts a smile into his cheeks, uh, so he has a permanent smile, and then he burns off his own eyelids okay. so that he can always see this smile. Uh, and then he subsequently, you know, uh, this is the like origin story myth of a serial killer who goes from house to house. Uh, and before he kills his victims, he says, go to sleep. <laughs> I should also add no relation to Killer Mike. Yeah, none yeah. none that I know of, uh, though. Jeff, the killer is a supporter of Bernie Sanders, it turns out. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, but no, um, the the funny thing is, is that uh, so the story sort of starts off as like a from the perspective of somebody who's about to be killed by Jeff the Killer mm-hmm. and then it kind of flings backwards and reveals the origin of Jeff the Killer um and it it so you're probably listening to this and going well, where's the science yeah, here, what guys? Yeah, what could possibly the, be about this Yeah, guy? those of you out there who are like these guys have gone a little bit over the deep end with the monster horror stuff we we actually uh did a little bit of digging and it turns out uh not Jeff the killer wise but the there's three topics that we want to touch on here uh one people giving themselves permanent smiles and the science of fake smiling and mm-hmm. how our minds uh, react to it two the idea of eyelid replacement surgery which is apparently much bigger of a thing than i thought it would be yeah i mean it's uh it's a rather complex uh, procedure and an important one in, in terms of reconstructive yeah. plastic surgery. And then the third one is th- there's there is a strong reality of acid attacks out there. Uh, and it's it's largely common in countries uh, in uh, like Afghanistan, Cambodia, I believe, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, all of these countries have like pretty high incidence. And I was shocked to find out how often this happens. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll touch on that briefly. Yeah. And that is, that's going to be, you know, some dark real life stuff there at the end. Yeah. Uh, but I encourage you to stick with it. Uh, we actually had a discussion about whether we should actually discuss that. Like, is it, is it right to start a podcast off with something kind of light and stupid and right. end up in a, a dark and serious place? But 
I think so. I think it's it's a topic that's worth, if you're not familiar with it, it's worth becoming familiar with this topic. Yeah. And this is probably one of the better opportunities for us to discuss it, because it's not the kind of thing that we would do a, an entire episode on for this show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I wasn't... Um I was familiar that this was an, a thing that happened occasionally, like mm-hmm. that I would hear about in the news. But when we did the research for this episode, I, I was shocked to find out how frequent it is. And, uh, I, yeah, I think it deserves, you know, some time on this episode and for people to learn a little bit more about it. I, I'm glad that I learned a little bit more about it doing the research. So let's, uh, let, let's start off with the smiling thing. Okay. So this is a recurring motif in, our fiction, the idea of a sort of creepy smile, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it comes up over and over again. Obviously, the thing most people think about is the Joker for the Batman villain, the Joker. Right. Uh, Which varying depictions, either uh, like the Dark Knight, he has yeah. the, the, the Glasgow smile. Yeah. The Glasgow yeah. grin where it's been cut in. Other times yeah. he has, has a frozen grin. Um, yeah. And yeah, what he's, he's wearing a like a face Recently, I haven't really been keeping up. Yeah, I think I haven't read that storyline either. But my understanding is, yeah, he had his own face cut off and mm-hmm. then sewed it back on in okay. a smile. It, uh, but then I think they've already retconned that. So he's <laughs> like, that was just like for a year okay. or two or something. They, but they they basically wanted to like up the gross out horror factor with the Joker, and I think they've scaled back from that probably because they have that Suicide Squad movie coming out later this summer with Jared Leto. Oh yeah, as right. the like punk rock. Uh, uh, Kid Rock version <laughs> version of the Joker. Yeah, and uh, the, the creepy fake smile. We, you know, we encounter that throughout our myth cycles. Uh, one of the, the one of the the ones that I really uh, have, have been impressed with, and this is a, a recent phenomenon dating back to around 1979 in uh, Japan's uh, Nagasaki uh, Prefecture. Uh, this is uh, the the urban legend of the slit mouthed woman or uh, Kuchisaki Ona. And uh, basically, the urban legend is that this this uh, woman was mutilated by her husband. Um, she he like slits her, her uh, the corners of her mouth, mm. uh, so she has this slit uh, slit face. And uh, her ghost wanders around, comes up to people and asks, "Do you think I'm beautiful?" Right. And there's apparently like a whole program of how you respond. Oh. Uh, like if you say yes, she'll kill you one way. If you say no, she'll kill you another or oh, mutilate you. Lovely. Um, but, you know, it's very well versed in this sort of grotesque fake smile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, seems to have particular resonance in Asian cultures. Um, so there's that myth. I'm, I think of Ichi the Killer, that uh, oh, yes. Takashi Miike movie, um, which I guess is probably part of the inspiration for where that Christopher Nolan Joker came from, the idea of the Glasgow. We should probably explain what a Glasgow smile is. Uh, this is the idea <laughs> that street gangs uh, in Glasgow would slice your face, uh, yeah. slice, give you a fake grin. It was sort of like their way to mark you. Yeah. Uh, and I was surprised. I think the actor, I think his name's Tommy Flanagan. Oh, yeah. I looked from, it up uh, yesterday. From uh, Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He actually has, like, somebody did that to him. I, yeah, yeah. I had he, no idea. He was, uh, I think, a DJ back in the day. And okay. He was uh, assaulted leaving a club. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that's a real thing. Um, but, yeah, Ichi the Killer. And then we're going to find, as we're talking about it, that, like, there's a big plastic surgery movement in South Korea that's connected to this sort of... Uh, enhanced fake smile as well. Yeah. And of course, if you want to see a fake smile, you don't have to turn to ghost stories and, and other cultures because they're everywhere, right? Yep. The politician, the car salesman, um, me. Yeah. <laughs> I, so like, I, I, 
you know, <laughs> I try my best and I guess our stuff to believe my promotional photos, but I'm terrible. I'm one of those people that's just terrible at smiling in photographs. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife teases me about it all the time that I'm like, that I look even creepier when I'm trying to smile. And it's that, it's that thing where I'm smiling with my mouth, but not with my eyes. Yeah. It's because <clears throat> the, the smile, uh, as it turns out is far more complex than just that fake smile. And we can tell, uh, when somebody's yeah. fake smiling and, and it, it gets complicated, but it basically comes down like the way I always think about facial expressions is your face is a communication array. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not just about voice. It's not just about body and movements. It, it's, it's about, you know, where your eyes are looking, what your, what all the, the expressions and micro expressions, how they're coming together to communicate with another, uh, facial communication array. Yeah. In nonverbal communication studies, uh, outside of just body language, like the broad study of body language, facial communication is huge and it mm-hmm. adds a ton to how we communicate with one another outside of, you know, our, our verbal communications, right? Like think about when you're talking on the phone, right? It's, it's much more limited compared to when you're talking to someone face to face and you can actually see the different ways they're communicating. I'm like waving at my face right now. <laughs> as I'm talking to Robert. <laughs> yeah. And of course these are the problems inherent in, uh, in podcasting email, as well, both podcasting and email communication, yeah. especially. Yeah. So essentially though, there are two types of smiles then yeah. you can think of them as the fake and the genuine smile. So first you have the Duchenne smile, and this is named for French uh, physician, uh, Guillaume Duchenne, who in 1862 conducted a slew of experiments, essentially electrocuting people's <laughs> facial mu- muscles into outrageous grins. See, like, we didn't really have to go too far from Jeff the Killer through science yeah. to get to something just as creepy. Yeah. Electrocuting people's faces into smiles. Yeah, science is inherently weird. <laughs> so, in, in these cases, the electrical current activates contractions in two muscles. The voluntary zygomatic major, which uh, raises the corners of the mouth, and the involuntary uh, orbicularius oculi, which raises the cheeks and spreads crow's feet across around the eyes. And that's really, that's the, that's the part that gen, generates the idea of the real smile, mm-hmm. right? The, the crow's feet and the cheeks raising up. Um, there's have also been, uh, research, there has also been research done that patients with damage to their motor cortex in their brain's left hemisphere, they can only smile asymmetrically with the right side not moving the way it should. Uh, and here's the trick though. If they laugh spontaneously, they smile normally. They, they'll do one of the Duchenne uh, smiles without asymmetry. So, uh, likewise, when a patient with damage to their anterior cingulate, which is the part of the limbic system, uh, in your brain, when they try to smile, there's no asymmetry. It's symmetrical. Uh, this whole thing leads to the hypothesis that the fake uh, smile, what is sometimes referred to as the say cheese smile, <laughs> is controlled by the motor cortex, where the Duchenne smile is actually uh, controlled by the limbic system, which is the actual emotional center of the brain. So it's two different parts of the brain interacting. And not only does our brain uh, generate the smiles differently, but it responds to other people's versions of these smiles differently. But of course, this so so essentially, we've we've outlined here that there is the genuine smile, there's the fake smile. Yeah. But of course, can we tell the difference? Yeah. Are creepy smiles creepy because we can see through the con? Well, a 2013 study from the University of La Laguna, Spain, investigated, and they found that on first glance, test subjects had a very hard time recognizing that fake smile, which yeah. surprised me because. Uh, 
there are fake smiles out there that you you look at it. And maybe it, it's more a matter of projecting on that person. Like yeah. this politician is smiling. It must be fake. That's funny that you, you know? said politician because that's where I immediately go to as well. Yeah. The dead smile of certain politicians. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's another study that was done out of North uh, Eastern University in Boston that found that two thirds of individuals can fake a Duchenne smile well in a way that people can't. Uh, distinguish. They can't mm. tell whether they're fake smiling or real smiling. I, I'm not one of those two things. I'm the I'm the one third that can't do it because whenever I do it, it it looks like you know I'm dead inside. Like I, I look like Jeff the Killer. Yeah. <laughs> well, then there's also this. I feel like there's this feeling just in our daily interactions. Um, not me and you, but just everyone in general. Right. Yeah. Is that fake smiles are kind of. Uh, ex- uh, expected fake smiles oh, yeah. and fake laughter. So sometimes you're you're chatting with somebody and they're haha, they're laughing, they're smiling. And on some level, I know that this interaction is either maybe not completely fake, but at least punched up. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it feels okay because I expect that. Yeah, it is sort of the motions of everyday like human beings just trying to get along, right? Yeah. Uh, and then there's sometimes, maybe this says something more about me, like every, uh, the audience is going to learn today that I can't actually uh, fake a smile and that I get irritated by people who do fake smiles. <laughs> but like, I'll be sitting there and overhearing kind of those, you know, those conversations where I know one person is angry at the other person, but they're, they're faking their way through it. They're smiling. They're doing the kind of fake laughter the, mm-hmm. to just kind of make their way through the conversation and get, get away from conflict, right? Avoid right. conflict. That drives me crazy. Uh, I'm conflict oriented, I guess, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, it is, it's, it's, it's every day. It's every day for human beings. Um, and it's, there's tons of studies into this. Like when we dove into this, I thought, oh, well, the, you know, the Jeff the Killer smile thing, sure, there's going to be a little bit of research into the fake smiles, but it was like a sea of research. Yeah. I think we only scraped the top of it here. Yeah. Now to, to return to that, that Spanish study that I was mentioning, uh, just a second ago, they found that the longer they looked at the individual, the longer, uh, the longer a, a one person looked at the other person, uh, taking in all the details of the expression, the more yeah. they saw through, uh, the, the ruse. However, oh. in 40% of the cases, test subjects ultimately classified ambiguous smiles as happy since their eyes were drawn more to yeah. the smile than to the eyes. That probably has something to do, I would imagine, with, uh, these were both done in Western societies. There's mm-hmm. an aversion to looking at people's uh, eyes too long in Western culture in facial communication as well. I used to talk about this with my students when uh, I would I was teaching communication classes that like if you you know obviously you're expected to maintain eye contact for a certain amount of time so mm-hmm. that you can put, uh, convey your interest right. But if you just stare directly into a person's eyes while you're communicating and don't unlock, it becomes very uncomfortable pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder if that has something to do with it as well, but also like the crow's feet thing, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a detail that becomes more obvious the longer that you're staring at somebody too. Yeah. So maybe I did not stop staring at you this whole time. Yeah, he didn't. He, he held, he kept committed to the bit and it, I was the only one who got to stick to it. I find myself in certain situations, uh, feel, I feel like I'm playing a game of like staring chicken yeah. with someone and I'll, I'll become super conscious. Uh, am I staring too long? Should I be breaking my eyes away? Yeah. How uncomfortable am I? And then sometimes I think, should I just keep staring to maintain, to like win 
<laughs> yeah. In this yeah. Topic, this, uh, this well, that's, there's something more to that as well that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but the whole thing is super confusing to our brains too, right? Like mm-hmm. think about our poor brains. Like it's trying to process generating these smells, but then it's trying to also process, uh, like interpreting whether these smells are genuine or not. Right. Uh, and a UCLA scientist named Marco Iacoboni, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, he noted that our brains are actually, you know, wired for sociability. That makes sense. Uh, we're social animals. And if we observe another person's smile, it mirrors the neurons in that person's brain. Brain, they will light up in our own brains as if we are smiling ourselves, right? So there's that idea too that like the smile is contagious, and then which we're we're going to talk about as well today, uh, that the smile itself, whether it's genuine or not, generates happiness. Yeah. So it yeah the the issue is is not as cut and dry. Now that being said, if the smile fake smile is cut into the person's face, yeah, you're probably going to catch up. That's probably yeah. Your brain yeah. will probably figure that one out. <laughs> For the rest of us, though, if dealing with just normal fake smiles, um, you were probably wondering how can you consciously detect one? Well, we already mentioned that it's a little problematic, but according to body language expert Nicholas Freitas. You look at the crow's feet. Okay. Look to look for their bottom teeth. If you can't see them, it might be a fake smile. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Like, I guess when I think of like really emphasizing the fake smile to the point of like making it creepy on purpose, you, mm-hmm. that's when you yeah, like you really like bite down on the teeth and uh, demonstrate your 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 lower teeth. Yeah I, yeah, I could see that. But then, like, you've got to keep those e- those eyes dead. No crow's feet. I wonder if people who na- who you know naturally through aging or whatever just have more crow's feet are better at the the faking thing. I don't know. That would be I, an I'm interesting. Sure, I'm sure there's a study somewhere that we missed yeah, on that. Though. Yeah, maybe. So yeah, basically, the, the involuntary movements of the uh, orbicularis oculi are key here. Uh, this can cause the the eyes to close while fake smilers often keep their their upper face very still. And if that doesn't work, MIT's uh, Media Lab has developed an algorithm that allows machines to pinpoint fake happiness and frustration as well. Wow. Which leads to a whole bunch of, uh, you know, potential applications in our uh, our cybernetic future, right? You can have some sort of app in your your eyeball or yeah. your glasses that uh, can cue you in to uh, to fake expressions. It's, yeah, it's it shows like the RoboCop display, like it shows the person's <laughs> face, and then like a little thing comes up, and it's like this person is faking. Uh, well, let's get into the faking part. Yes, yeah. uh, there's some actual science to the fake it till you make it. Uh, I you know idea of making yourself happy. Yeah. Um, a 2012 study uh, from the University of Kansas studied how smiling influences our recovery from stressful activities, and they found that a genuine smile resulted in faster recovery time and a more relaxed state. But uh, even a fake smile can force your emotional state to follow suit. Yeah, I'm, I think this is the same study. I read a couple different studies, but I think this this is the one you're talking about. The title is Grin and Barrett, the Influence of Manipulated Positive Facial Expression on the Stress Response, mm-hmm. which is a pretty uh, hilarious uh, <laughs> title uh, by Tara Kraft and Sarah Pressman. Uh, and they, is this the one where they use chopsticks? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they use chopsticks to manipulate the facial muscles of 169 different participants. And from my understanding, they did it in a couple different ways. I'd l- I didn't get to see any like images. I'm, I'm assuming they must have taken pictures or video or something that went along with this, but... Some of them, they bit down on the chopsticks. Others, they like put the chopsticks in their mouths horizontally. So it was pushing, uh, their, their cheeks up, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the general idea here was that they had three different 
positions that they put their faces in. There's the neutral expression, a standard smile, and the Duchenne smile. Uh, and then they subjected them, well, they've got these chopsticks in their face. They subjected them to stress-inducing, multitasking activities. Uh, and obviously this is more difficult when you've got chopsticks shoved in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, and the results were basically that uh, those who were instructed to smile recovered from the stressful activity with a lower heart rate than those with the neutral expressions. So the Duchenne smile is the one that makes you the most relaxed. That's kind of weird. Um, regardless of how you're actually feeling, it'll generate that relaxing feeling in you. And so there's lots of other studies that seem to indicate that the just smiling thing can produce a happy feeling. Uh, and from our own, uh, uh home base site, howstuffworks.com, there's a, uh, article about the smiling happiness thing. Uh, it says that in 1989, uh, Robert Zajonk, I believe, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Z-A-J-O-N-C. Zajonk. Zajonk. Uh, sounds Eastern European to me. Um, so sorry, Robert. Uh, uh, but he published a study where he had his subjects repeat vowel sounds over and over again, forcing their faces into various expressions. This is kind of like, I guess, like isometric exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to mimic a smile, they made an E sound to stretch the corners of their mouth outward. Then they also tested a long U sound, which is kind of like, I guess, U, uh, which forced the mouth into a pout. And then they reported their feelings after this. And, of course, uh, after doing the E for a long time, they felt good. And after doing the U sound for a long time, they felt bad. Now, his research proposes that there's a physiological connection going on here between the facial changes and the brain activities that are associated with happiness. And he goes deep here. He says uh, the internal carotid artery, this is the pipe that's kind of like uh, above your mouth, it delivers the majority of blood to the human brain. Mm-hmm. It flows through an opening in our heads called the cavernous sinus. And this contains a lot of our facial veins, right? Uh, so the idea is that when we're smiling, those veins are constricted and that cuts down on the flow of blood to our brain. Uh, and this makes the temperature in our brain drop the blood of, or at least the blood drop. The idea here is that the cooler your brain is, the better your emotions are going to be. They're going to be good emotions, according to research. Whereas a warmer brain produces negative emotions. Interesting. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So um, uh, his theory was basically that the reverse is also true, that that when your muscles are frowning, that increases the blood flow, which makes your brain warmer, which makes it more difficult to be happy. Which is interesting. I I, I guess I think about like the temperature... Uh, differences of, of various areas of the world where people live. There must be some kind of studies on like whether people who live uh, in the Arctic, for instance, are, uh, you know, more likely to be happy than I guess like people who live near the equator. Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't know to what extent they they look to this area that we're discussing here, which is essentially that like the temperature constraints yeah. on like the physical mechanisms of of facial happiness. I believe that that's the same mechanism that causes brain freeze too. Like when you're having like ice cream or a popsicle Mm -hmm. or something like that. I think that, uh, we've done research on this for an episode of brain stuff, the video show that Joe and I write on. Uh, and I believe that that, uh, artery is uh, what causes brain freeze is that like the, the, at least I think that is 
You know, when you say that you and Joe have done research on this, I'm imagining you guys going out for the ice cream. The two of us yeah. just eating ice cream until it hurts so much and then like putting our heads in MRI machines. Uh, if only, if only. But so it gets even crazier. Okay. So we've got chopsticks shoved in the face. Uh, we're talking about ice cream, right? What about Botox injections? Oh yeah. So, uh, if you inject Botox into your face, there's been research that shows that it dampens your emotional responses, specifically the ones that paralyze the small, uh, wrinkle causing muscles around the eyes, the, the crow's feet. Yeah, because you are interfering with the physical communication of emotion, yeah. but in this we- weird sense, it's also affecting how you feel. Like we tend to think like, here's the puppet master and here's the puppet. Yeah. And we think that Everything that's going on with the puppet master is authentic and everything on the outside is just its shadow, its expression. But it, it's like the mind body connection. Everything is, is, is hooked together. Everything's connected here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to the point that it, it not only reduces your happiness, it also reduces your depression as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what they did was they showed, uh, people who had had Botox injection, injections, quote, Happy videos. So I'm, I'm imagining this is like cats or Kittens, something like baby that. Sloths, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they uh, recorded their emotional response to these things. And they found that, yeah, both their depression rate and their happiness rate were lowered. The effects were minor, though. So I don't want to, like, paint the uh, idea here that people turn into, like, emotionless robots when they get Botox injections. Uh, but they also did a study on the Botox thing at the University of Cardiff, and they found that the people with smile injections, so th- this is different from the crow's feet injections, mm-hmm. uh, they're happier on average than people who can frown <laughs> without Botox. Uh, scientists at the Technical University of Munich also found that when they scanned Botox recipients with fMRI machines, while those people were mimicking angry faces, they found that they had much lower activity in their brain circuits involved with emotional processing than those people who had not received Botox treatment. So it is possible that maybe we would feel less pain if we weren't physically able to express it. So that's huh. kind of an interesting turn of events on the whole Botox thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you think it, it goes one way and then it flips the other here. And then we should, of course, mention that all of this goes back to, like, the, the granddaddy who, who postulated a lot of this was Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he proposed way back in 1872 uh, that facial expressions don't just reflect emotions, but they cause them as well. Uh, and he actually is quoted as saying, the free expression by outward signs of an emotion intensifies it. And he observed this in babies. Uh, and he said that babies that are born blind smile the same as babies that are sighted. And the reason why he thought was because uh, at five weeks old, babies uh, start learning to smile. And the reason why is that we learn that crying gets the attention of an adult, but smiling keeps them there. So whether you can see or not, you're able to um, realize that, that that has some kind of a, a cause and effect. All right. One more thing. I briefly mentioned this. Uh, so there's a connection between people who fight uh, and sort of like dominance in men specifically uh-huh. and smiling as well. Research has been done that shows that fighters who smile authentically at another fighter before a match are more likely to lose that match. <laughs> uh, Interesting. And, and it's somehow linked. Smiling is somehow linked to testosterone, like our thought of how much testosterone you have is linked to how authentic you're smiling. Uh, and so I, I got to wonder, like, what does that do to the whole fake smile system, right? Does it indicate strength then or not? 
Uh, and the, smiling also can sometimes indicate dominance, right? Like if you're in a position of power, you may be smiling authentically at the other person because you can, right? Yeah, like I'm thinking, I'm, I'm instantly thinking of, say, Brock Lesnar smiling. And <laughs> if it's a fake smile or a real smile, either one is terrifying if yeah. I'm in the wrong scenario with Brock Lesnar. Yeah, they even found that, that chimps have two different kinds of smiles. Uh, they have a submission face. So this is maybe a more interesting way for us to think about our smiles. Mm-hmm. The submission face where their lips are retracted and their lips are exposed. Uh, so this is sort of like the equivalent of a dog like laying down on its back, right? right. Exposing its its belly. Uh, and they have a play face where their lower jaw is dropped and the corners of, the, of their mouth are pulled back. But so they have a whole dominance thing going on as well with their smiles. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. You bring this all back to Jeff the Killer. Uh, <laughs> if Jeff the Killer's smile is fake because he's cut it into his own face, then the fake smile won't necessarily, I guess that does necessarily uh, indicate that he's more dominant, right? Yeah. Because the real smile would be <laughs> submissive. And maybe he's happier. I don't know. He might be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss some more smile science. Uh, we're going to discuss some uh, some reconstructive surgery and uh, eventually get to this episode's uh, more dark real-world world conclusion. Hey, everybody, you know how it is. You've got to have a professional-looking website. That's just how we represent ourselves in this day and age. That's how you present yourself on the Internet. The thing is, not all of us have a big fancy web designer to turn to. Not everybody has the coding skills they need to build something up from scratch. And that is where Squarespace comes in. Squarespace will give you the tools you need, uh, an interface that makes sense. And you can use all of these elements to make the website that you've been looking for. And you don't have to relearn or reinvent coding to do it. Now, we want you to try this out for yourselves. Now is the time to build that website you've been dreaming of. So head on over to Squarespace and use our promo code MINDBLOWN to get 10% off your first purchase and a free domain name. So head on out there, build that website with Squarespace. All right, we're back. Um, We're talking about... Killer Jeff. I mean, we're sort of talking about Killer Jeff. We're talking about scientific topics that uh, that stem from uh, contemplation of this particular creepypasta. Yeah, and we've hit a lot of the smile science. But of course, you know, some of you out there are wondering, is there any science behind carving a smile into your own face? Is there Joker science? Because most here? depictions of it are it's pretty crude, right? It's the, and it's yeah. the horror of like, oh, facial mutilation. And this isn't a real smile at all. This is like the worst Right. I even think like I read like there's like one rumor that the photoshopped image of Jeff the killer like uses like parts of a a, a wolf's mouth. Or maybe yeah. it's just a dog, but mm-hmm. I saw that um, in order to make the rictus look a little bit creepier. Mm-hmm. But uh hey, turns out that lots of people are doing this, not like in their own bathroom with like a carving knife or anything, but there is a, a whole culture surrounding uh, the plastic surgery of uh, giving yourself a permanent smile. Yeah, if this sounds familiar, uh, it is because in August 2013, The Atlantic reported on a growing surgical trend in South Korea, Valentine Anguloplasty, also known as Valentine Mouth Rejuvenation or Corner of the Mouth Lift. And so it's apparently called this because of the heart shape that it makes when the muscle tissues are removed at your lips edges. Um, if, if those of you out there, you know, like the Cupid's bow 
uh, part of your mouth that I, I know this just from like drawing classes and like learning anatomy and how to draw a mouth mm-hmm. and stuff. Cupid's bow is sort of like, uh, the middle of your mouth, I guess. Uh, like that, uh, area is sort of, uh, highlighted because of the removal of the areas at the edges of the lips. Each one of these procedures costs $2,000, which mm. I, I don't know anything about plastic well, surgery, but to me, I was like, that's cheap. That's, I, I don't know. Yeah. Is it cheap? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, well, maybe I, plastic I, surgery is less than I thought it was. I don't think I would, I would be able to really, com- er, no, is that, is that Korean or? I think that's the Korean procedure. Okay. Yeah. See, I see, I don't know. I can't really frame that in the reference of, of Korean surgical costs, but yeah, over I here, know. I feel like that would be cheap. Seems like it. Yeah. Um, Okay, so this brings us back to that Glasgow grin, Glasgow smile we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's a, it's a little reminiscent of that, except, um, you know, go ahead and cast away any, you know, of the more grotesque ideas here, because yeah, we are yeah. talking very slight, uh, augmentation. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't Heath Ledger's Joker, like, like, how do you think I got these scars kind of thing? Like, like you c- can barely tell from the photos right. that I saw. Yeah, now, of course, one of the things that, that comes to, came to mind when I was reading about it is that, it's easy for these when you have a report coming out of something that is supposedly a trend yeah. in a foreign country. Sometimes things get a little blown out of proportion. Yeah. Uh, uh, for instance, I always, I always come back to the bagel head thing. This was right. where, um, right. which we have an awesome post about on on stuff to oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a fun one. But this was in Japan where a few individuals, like a handful of people, yeah. have had um, uh, silicone in, injected into their head and, and to make the a forehead, forehead to make a bulge, yeah, yeah, just under the skin, and then they press their finger in it, and it kind of makes a bagel. Look. Yeah. Um, yeah. And very few people have done this, but some of the initial reporting, granted not the the Atlantic, but right. uh, yeah. other, other places reported, oh, this is everyone is doing this, as if all right. the teens in Japan are going out and having this procedure. <laughs> so... Anytime I read about a surgical procedure in another country that is a trend, uh, you know, I always sort of put my warning lights on a little bit. Yeah, and I it, I do have to note, like, uh, none of the pieces I read for this, uh, I don't think they gave numbers on how mm-hmm. many people were getting this done. But they did say that it's very popular with people who work in customer service. Yeah, like, uh, you know, flight attendants, secretary. I mean, you, you can imagine any situation where that... Uh, that facial communication array interface with yeah. a client or a customer is is vital. And these are largely people in their 20s and 30s, too. I right. Think probably because they're in that customer service sector, they're being told, like, you're not happy enough for, for the for the job or whatever. And so they get this procedure done so they can make a career out of it, I suppose. Yeah, and of course, it's a horrible thing to be told. I'm sorry, not happy enough for this job. Ugh, but um, It's the worst. <laughs> like, like I kept thinking about that, too, because I don't know about you, but like as a kid, I, I always got that, like, you don't smile enough kind of thing. Like, uh-huh. why don't you smile more? That sort of thing from teachers and stuff. And I know that that's uh, even worse for women. Like it's such mm-hmm. a gendered thing. Like, Oh, you should smile more, you know? Yeah. Um, so I imagine that this probably plays into the, uh, a- angle of plasty. Yeah. So, um, with definitely with the 20 and 30 year olds, you're talking about people with, with naturally downturned mouth corners mm. and they're essentially just getting things perked up a little bit, but also this surgery, uh, has applications for aging people where you have downturned corners of the mouth and sort of downturned, uh, lines in general due mm. to just, facial aging. Mm. And so one of the things that I read, I think it was a Wall Street Journal uh, blog post about this kind of surgery. They stated that this has actually been around for over 50 years in medical circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was done in here in the West, but uh, apparently very few plastic surgeons over here perform it anymore. Yeah. So that's curious to me. I wonder um, 
why not? I wonder, wonder what it is about, uh, Korean culture versus, you know, Western culture that makes it acceptable or not acceptable. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure we have listeners, uh, who are uh, Korean yeah. or of a uh, Korean descent who might be able to give their own two cents. Yeah. I would love to hear more about it. And, you know, um, maybe somebody out there has got one of these. I don't know, but, hmm. uh, I, I'm just curious about the whole thing. It, I have to say, like, I'm overall usually kind of dismissive of the idea of plastic surgery. But in this case, like, I could well, see, like, I sort of, well, I mean, plastic surgery yeah. and the cosmetic application. Well, no, this is an easy, this is an easy thing to, 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 uh, to, to fall on that line on because, because yeah. I feel like in our culture, plastic surgery is often just the go-to word for unnecessarily plastic surgery. Yes, you're right. But as we're, as we're discussing this episode, there's, of course, a, a large area of plastic surgery that deals with, um, with with either uh, you know e- either correcting uh, birth defects of yes. varying degrees or or dealing with injuries of varying degrees, uh, but again, plastic surgery in the headline sense, it seems like it always ends up referring to something that is purely um, you know uh, p- purely uh, cosmetic. But uh, but anyway, the the idea of this particular sur- uh, surgery, uh, it's really interesting because on one hand, it's easy to look at it and say, well, hey, you're getting a fake smile, you're manipulating right. the natural facial expression of emotion. But the counter argument is that especially with age related negative lines, like those are warping your natural facial expressions. Those mm-hmm. are messing with your ability to convey your emotions through and, and communicate through your facial communication array. Yeah. And, and also how it's received too, right? Yeah. Like, so like we were talking earlier before the break about how people see smiles and perceive them in, uh, the kind of happiness that that generates or even like the kind of happiness that just smiling on its own generates. So I'd be curious to see a study on Valentine angle plasty and the level of happiness amongst the people who have received it okay, uh, versus, indeed. I guess, you know, uh, they would have to use like a, uh, a control group of people who, who don't have it. All right. So we've, we've talked about smiles already, but of course that's not the only, uh, um, the, the only, uh, aspect of, uh, Jeff the killer here. Right. That, so, uh, it raises our interest. The story goes that in order to, I guess, see how lovely his face is all the time, uh, he burns off or cuts off his eyelids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that you normally see, uh, people do to themselves. However, there are lots of occasions in which, uh, eyelids either need to be uh, replaced or fixed uh, through surgery. This is a good example of what we were just talking about with corrective surgery. Uh, or, or people have been in like really horrible accidents and need to have grafts put on because uh, eyelids are an important thing. Yeah, uh, I have to admit that this is an area that's that's fascinated fascinated me ever since I read Larry McMurtry's novel Comanche Moon. Oh, so this is I'm not familiar with this. All right, well it's it's in the same series, the Lonesome Dove series. So oh, if you're okay. familiar with those characters, like Twigley. they they are in this book. It's like it, I think it comes before. Yeah, it definitely comes before. Okay, Lonesome Dove, but. If you if you haven't read it, you've probably maybe you've seen it at a bookstore, and it just looks like a big, thick Western novel, right? But I have to tell you, it is this is a weird book yeah. <laughs> in respects. It features a lot of uh, Comanche um, horse mysticism, okay. and there's a whole lot of torture and flaying in it. Uh, in particular, there's a an already weird Texas Ranger character uh, named Captain Inish Skull. Okay, he winds up captured by a bandit uh, warlord, and then his torturers. Um, they're, you know, they busy themselves deciding just how much skin they're going to remove from their various captives. Yeah. And they finally decide, well, we're just going to take his eyelids. Okay. So they cut off his eyelids so he can't turn his head away from the, yeah. the horrors of the sun. 
But he he eventually escapes in the book and he crafts a special set of glasses with a system of varying shades to click through in order to regulate the amount of light entering his eyes. So it's it's really almost a kind of crazy, almost steampunky yeah. notion. That is little, not what I would yeah. expect from a lonesome dove book. <laughs> yeah, it is a it is a weird Great, a great book. I tremendously enjoyed it. Uh-huh. I it. Well, so eyelids themselves, though, you know, they do more than filter light, right? So, right. I mean, that is one of the important features, though. Cause, yeah. I mean, you you can't squint. You can't. Yeah. You can't adjust to the lighting. It's always just wide open all the time. Huh. So I'm guessing. I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around in both of these fictional examples is what what that would do to the eyeball. Well, you would, it, it definitely plays into some of the other key reasons to have eyelids to begin with. Mm. Uh, moistening the eyeball via blinking, spreading tears right. across the surface of the eyes, especially the moist cornea. Okay. Uh, so like maybe his goggles need to like have a little bit of, I don't know, like a moisture trapped inside of them. As yeah. Well. Yeah. Like some sort of like little, uh, clockwork orange squeezies yeah. on the side. Yeah. So, you know, th- this is what Jeff would need in order to turn his life around. Uh, also your eyelids protect your pr- protect just stuff from getting in there. All yeah. sorts of debris that's going to blow around in the wind and uh, help. They help keep uh, uh perspiration out of the eyes yep. as well. Okay. So the key risk here is exposure keratopathy, which is excessive dryness due to revealed eye, mm. especially during sleep. So, and, and this is interesting. You'll, as we'll, we'll discuss, there are surgical methods to either replace eyelids or to, um, correct eyelids that have, that either there's a birth defect or it's an aging yeah. related uh, symptom. But, um, if, if, without going into those surgeries, the best you could do is to apply a nightly dressing to the eyes. Okay. Uh, like with using bubble patches or swim goggles even mm. to ensure that the eyes stay moist. Right. Yeah. So you got to wonder about this Jeff the Killer myth then that like, uh, you know, he's already kind of a crazy serial killer who's done all this terrible stuff to his face. But mm-hmm. like uh, he'd have like some real eye problems unless he like put some swim goggles on and dressed his eyes every night. Yeah. Or I guess every day because he's probably... Uh, a serial killer at night. Yeah, because that's when he, he says go to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> and, and of course, and I don't know if he would be more or less terrifying with swim goggles on. I can't <laughs> <say>. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, yeah. in his case, though, if he wanted surgery, he's going to have because there are there are surgical techniques that can be used to just correct minor right. situations. Right, yeah. you're not getting full coverage. Due I to saw lots of academic articles mm-hmm. about um, different procedures and methodologies for uh, that kind of reconstructive surgery. And then I think there's also like grafting that can be done from other parts of your body, right? Right, yeah. Now with, but with Jeff or with Captain Skull here, nothing short of total upper and lower eyelid replacement is going to actually take care of things. And this is a complex surgical procedure, a series of procedures even. Uh, A 2002 paper on this titled Treatment of Bilateral Severe Eyelid Burns with Skin Grafts. Colon, an odyssey, which should give you some idea yeah. of what we're dealing with here. In this case, five operations over the course of five years uh, wow. for the individual. And then there's a 2008 paper, Total and Upper Eyelid Replacement Following Thermal Burn Using an ALT Flap, a case uh, report. Uh, this chronicles the use of uh, of free anterior lateral high, that thigh, that's ALT, okay. thigh flaps, uh, in the skin graft procedure. So you're cutting uh, bits off of your own thigh and then using those to graft in new eyelids. Yeah, we're talking about a skin graft here and a rather rather detailed uh, one as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's not... It's not just as simple as just throwing some uh, some tissue back up over the eye. You have to hook it into the mm. uh, 
the 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 existing muscles. Uh, it's it's a complex procedure, but yeah. uh, in, in the case of of total eyelid loss, uh, you know, a necessity. So as far as our Jeff the Killer uh, loose thread that we're following here, uh, the fake smile thing. Yeah, there's some plausibility to that, but it would be more like a, a Glasgow grin, I think, than like uh, the Valentine Angloplasty that we were just talking about, unless right. he's really skilled with whatever whatever blade he was using in his parents' bathroom. Uh, and then as far as the, this eyelid thing goes, I mean, it sounds to me like you wouldn't get uh, very far or very long without eyelids uh, unless like you had, unless you're constantly, care, yeah. yeah, you're constantly treating it yourself. I don't even know if the goggles would cut it. Yeah. Now, at this point, we're going to get into uh, a little darker, realistic territory. It, but I think it's important because with with Jeff the Killer, we're essentially talking about oh, this an individual that's scarred by fire, yeah. or or acid, and this and ma- this makes them horrible somehow. This makes them a monster, which of course is is a ridiculous notion. Um, but but we have this idea just throughout our, our horror culture especially like you have just yeah. all of these burnt uh creatures you know they're Freddy they're mutilated Kruger. yeah and then they're they're awful and they're yeah. less human because of it which is which is completely ridiculous yeah, uh, yeah absolutely so it's it's really essential to i think to, to to take that uh that that cultural trope and then actually discuss uh some some rather depressing um facts about real life um, mutilation attacks that continue to take place uh, around the world. Yeah, I have to say, like, we talked about this a little at the top, but I was just I was shocked at at how prevalent Mm -hmm. this is. Um, But I I'm glad that there's a lot of research being done on it. Um, In particular, there were two sources uh, that we we looked to here. One was a really great BBC uh, magazine article that was just sort of about the general cultural problem of what are called acid attacks. Right. Uh, and then we, we also looked at a thesis paper out of the university of North Carolina by a woman named Jane Welsh. And it's called, it was like burning in hell, a comparative exploration of acid attack violence. And she looks at the whole gamut of acid attacks in like the last, I think it's like 30 years that this has become fairly prevalent mm-hmm. um, and really kind of breaks down the statistics and what, what can be done and what should be done about them. So let's start with how, geez, how prevalent they actually are. Okay. Uh, acid attacks skew heavily, as you would imagine, toward women and girls, 75 to 80% of them are done to, to women. Uh, 30% of those women are under the age of 18. Uh, you may have heard about it recently. Uh, it happened, uh, in Zanzibar to two women who were tourists there. There's been a couple of, uh, incidents in which there have been Western tourists in, uh, other countries where this is, uh, more acceptable and, you know, some, somehow or another it's, they've offended someone and therefore like an acid attack is perpetrated against them. And these poor people, you know, have, have to go back and, uh, have surgeries to correct this. There's, there's, a a lot of, uh, literature on the surgeries themselves for this as well. So this is some of the numbers that I was able to accumulate for this. Just in England alone, which is not one of the major countries that you read about when uh, you hear about these acid attacks, mm-hmm. in, in the, between 2011 and 2012, there were 105 hospital admissions for uh, what were referred to there as assault by corrosive substances. Oh. Uh, so that covers more than acid, but it's the same premise, essentially. Uh, 
every year there are more than 1,500 cases recorded. So those are recorded ones. Those are the ones that are reported. Uh, there's an in, uh, an organization that tracks this called Acid Survivors Trust International. India has an increasing problem with this. Uh, that the the group that tracks that says that a thousand of the incidents take place in India every year. Uh, they're they're disproportionately common in South Asia, India, as I just mentioned. Uh, they they are also suspected to have very high numbers in Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and uh, um, Cambodia. Yeah, and so like many of the you know every case is a little different, but a lot of the ones that I've I've heard it entails uh, uh you know a male propositions a woman or tries to initiate some sort of uh, uh sexual or romantic yeah. um relationship with them they are rejected and then their response is i am going to deface you deface you i'm going to try to ruin you by yeah. uh assaulting you with acid yeah and uh, so i don't uh know the details specifically on those western tourists but i suspect that that was probably the case it's worth deeper diving um and and like we said at the top we didn't want to do a full episode on this mm-hmm. but we do think that it bears covering um yeah it, it, it's it's about destroying someone's identity at the end of it, right? Like that is the real uh, aggression here. Uh, and, and strangely, I guess that's kind of what Jeff the killer is about. It's, you know, yeah. if you can like do some sort of thematic analysis of a creepy pasta like that. Yeah. If you do a far more serious reheat of the pasta than it, yeah. than it deserves. Uh, the character Jeff starts off as just kind of a junior high kid, like everyday mm-hmm. American kid, uh, who deals with like incessant bullying and his brother getting thrown in jail and then he's assaulted terribly and literally changes his identity, right? Makes yeah. him go crazy. Well, I mean, really, there are two main obstacles here. I mean, one is just the cultural challenge of, of keeping this from happening to, to just, yeah. you know, push this back into the past. But on the other hand, too, it's, it's about the victims uh, as well. How, uh, there are various programs and, and, uh, and outreach uh, programs that are aimed at, at helping these women reclaim their lives, yeah, you know, and and help them feel like like in, in a way keeping their their attackers from winning, keeping their attackers from achieving this warped sense of victory, right? That they uh, that they set out to accomplish, yeah, absolutely, because it's more than just about like the the physical surgeries involved too, right? It's about the like uh, psychological consequences of l- losing your identity as such as it is. I, yeah. I don't think that the, a lot of these attackers articulate it that way, but that's essentially what's going on. Here. Yeah. The BBC piece that I was listening to, which dealt with, um, a cafe that uh, allows the, yeah. a place for these women to work and also has support network for them. Like they mentioned that in some of these cases, uh, the victim is, is, it can no longer turn to their family because there's like right. this, this level of, of shame that is, uh, uh, that is applied to her, to their plight that they they no longer have a home uh, because this this person assaulted them. Yeah, and I think that that is largely uh, cultural from from the areas that these are committed in too, mm-hmm. right? Like I'd, I'd like to think I don't know maybe it's not the case, but I'd like to think in in our culture at least here uh, in America uh, in the House Stuff Works Studio that <laughs> that that you know like. That wouldn't happen. Well, but that's the, I mean, that's one of the the things, right? Is so much of us live with the privilege of not having to know. Yeah. You know, we can, we can, we we can think, we can't help but think what would happen if this happened in my community, if this happened in my family? Uh, how would one respond? How does one react? And 
you know, luckily most of us don't have to know. Well, Jane Welsh's thesis, she really does a great job of breaking it down and it's, it's much longer. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to summarize a few facts here, but she found that, uh, this started somewhere around the 1960s. So I was off when I said 30 years. Uh, but, uh, it's, it, it's thought to have started in Cambodia, uh, as the earliest case of this kind of violence. Uh, and since that time, it's become an epidemic there. Uh, and in the late nineties through 2005, acid was a favored weapon of choice for women and men looking to disfigure their rivals and settle scores. Uh, and so, uh, some of the activists that are involved in this, they say that at least 60 people were attacked in one year alone. Well, th- that's in the nineties. You know, we just, uh, read the stats for now and it's th- in thousand, yeah. um, uh, and and that it's both men and women who are doing the attacking, uh, but you know more women are being attacked. Okay. Uh, and the reasons are listed as sexual jealousy, extramarital affairs, land or business disputes, domestic violence, personal or family disputes, robbery or hate and revenge. Yeah. And then it's usually a premeditated act that involves sulfuric, nitric, or hydrochloric acid thrown at another person. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's like much deeper that we can go than that other than, you know, if I guess if those of you out there want to hear more on this, we could maybe do a future episode where we dig deep into the, the science of the surgeries involved. But it uh, honestly, like I read a few of those getting ready for this episode and it was pretty deep diving. Like yeah. I, I, th- I think it was a uh, dense medical material that I didn't necessarily understand. Yeah. I think probably the best we can do is we'll make sure that the, the landing page for this episode will include links out to um, to some of the the sources here, as well as some organizations that yeah. are involved, some advocacy organizations. Um, the a positive BBC story that I heard that I alluded to already about the cafe. Uh, the title of that is "The Cafe Helping to Support Acid Attack Victims in India." I believe it's a video piece, uh, though I think I heard it on the radio initially. Um, that's worth checking out because it highlights not only the problem but also uh, what's some of the the efforts that are that are underway to. Yeah. Uh, to, to help the victims. So, uh, all right, let's like wrap this up uh, and and try not to end it on like a, a super bummer note with the acid attacks thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, as such as like, let's go back and look at the Jeff the Killer, I guess, myth and and in the realities involved, right? right? So, acid attacks, yes, that's a thing. Uh, unfortunately, more of a thing than we'd like it to be. So, sure, uh, a kid named Jeff could have been attacked in such a way; his face would have been burned away. And he would be able to go back to his home. I, from what I was reading, there were no acid attack victims though that go crazy and, no, and no. cut their mouths and cut their eyelids. Yeah, off, that right? is that is purely a a, a, a fictional uh, yeah thing. Yeah. Um. The eyelid reconstructive surgery. Yes, that you can reconstruct eyelids. I suppose you could cut your own eyelid off. But I don't know necessarily that you would be a very functional serial killer without eyelids. Right. And then when it comes down to the smile, wow, is there a lot of research oh, done yeah. <laughs> on that? Uh, but you know, in the Jeff the Killer situation, I don't think he's doing like a cosmetic Valentine angleoplasty as much as like, you know, it's just kind of the Glasgow grin joker kind of thing, Ichi the Killer type. You know, the, the, the generic, I guess it's become a generic trope now, geez, of like a, a sort of homicidal maniac who cuts themselves. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. We stood up to the challenge. We took, uh, you asked for Jeff the killer. We <laughs> you, gave you it got, to you. You asked for him. We, we gave it to you. Yeah. We explored some very fascinating science and cultural, uh, information, uh, that it, it, 
like I say, doesn't necessarily underlie that. It's not like the the author and authors of that original creepypasta were right. inspired by these things. But in a sense, Jeff is composed of all of these things. He's yeah. kind of like the cultural um, the the cultural sludge kind of comes together and forms a figure like this. Uh, in our myth making. Yeah, well, it's certainly, I mean, I think that the science and psychology behind fake smiles certainly play into, uh, at least the sort of general trope, yeah. uh, of, of this type of creepypasta. All right. So, hey, if we were to do a third creepypasta episode, which one would you like for us to tackle? Uh, which yeah. one would you like to, us to try and just dissect and, and dig some slivers of science out of? Yeah. Uh, you know, you can tell us about, uh, you, first of all, tell us about other creepypastas, even if they're not ones that you think we should cover, but, right. you know, ideally, uh, we'd like to do them on the podcast. I, uh, I was surprised at how many, uh, listeners popped up and were like, yeah, check this one out and this one and this one. Like, I think, you know, even though you and I are big horror fans, uh, that like, this is just a, an area of the medium mm-hmm. or the genre, I suppose, that we're not highly familiar with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if there's stuff out there that we're missing, let us know about it. You can always get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. We're below the mind on all of those. Uh, we do Periscope or Facebook Live on Fridays, Eastern Standard Time, around noon. Uh, and lately we've been kind of switching back and forth between those two things, but, you know, we'll let our audience know beforehand, uh, on, on those platforms, hey, this is what we're doing today before we, we jump on one or the other. Alright, if you want to get in touch with us via the, uh, the old fashioned email, you can reach us at BelowTheMind at For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.